again, everybody, and welcome to today's Scope of Practice podcast, the product of the Connecticut Certification Board. As we continue on with our fourth season of addressing anything and everything of interest to professionals in the substance use disorder and mental health prevention, treatment, and recovery industry. I want to flash back to just about two months ago, January 2nd, 2023, to Cincinnati, Ohio, specifically Paycourt Stadium. The hometown Bengals are taking on the Buffalo Bills in front of a national audience on Monday Night Football. In the first quarter, just short of 9 p.m. Eastern time, with Bengals receiver T. Higgins running after a catch, Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin made the tackle, stood up, and then collapsed with what we know was cardiac arrest. CPR was administered, his heartbeat was restored, he was transferred to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center where he was in the intensive care unit and cared for up until January 9th when he was transferred back to a Buffalo area hospital to be released two days later. Uh, not to uh, to minimize the, the effects of what happened, but uh, Hamlin recently stated that he plans on playing football again eventually. This horrifying incident puts the sports world into the national conscious among fans and non-fans alike. Significant attention has been paid to Hamlin's incredible recovery process from this life-threatening injury, but experts like today's guest help put the overall emotional response from his teammates and fellow players into the discussion. Dr. Kerry Hastings is a licensed clinical and sports psychologist with over 15 years experience and is a team psychologist for the Los Angeles Rams. Are you listening, Michael Clark? Those are your Rams. Dr. Hastings is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame, where she captained the track team as a hurdler and a sprinter. She obtains her master's and doctoral degrees in clinical psychology at Pepperdine, where she's worked as part of the adjunct faculty. She's a certified mental health performance consultant with the Association for Applied Sports Psychology and is listed in the U.S. Olympic Committee Sports Psychology and Mental Training Registry. Dr. Hastings is passionate about normalizing help-seeking behavior among athletes. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hastings. We're glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, As the team psychologist for the Rams, one would think that your role uh, would primarily focus on getting athletes mentally and emotionally ready to play each week, but that's not really an accurate description. Um, So can you tell a little bit about your role? Sure. Well, my role has definitely um, just grown each and every year since I've been with the Rams. Um, I wouldn't say that it's inaccurate that I prepare the players mentally and physically for performance, but um, there's a lot more layers to that. And I I primarily focus on the players. Um, I'll meet one-on-one with them as need be, um, but I also work with all the rookies. Um, there are certain rookie training sessions that are mandated by the league that I do. And um, I cover certain subject matters that um, that they also require. And so I, I get to meet all the players, you know, from their first day. And, um, and then I'm kind of there along the way. And I'll also give staff trainings and, um, you know, help coordinate different wellness ideas and projects that, um, that either I or some of my colleagues might have. So it's that's the beauty of it. It's it's something uh, unique and different all the time. And, and when people think of the league, they think of the stars. They don't think of the free agent signings out of college or the lower uh, round draft picks who are fighting for a job and even missing a play could jeopardize their ability. Um, and the, the intense pressure to perform at every moment um, 
we only see the, in our heads the, the superstars, the Tom Brady's of the world, the Aaron Donalds, who it, it seems to come easy to them, not those who struggle uh, every day just to maintain a spot on a team or even the practice squad. So I'm sure That's that so creates true. some challenges for them. Absolutely. There's always stuff going on behind the scenes, most of which, you know, the general public never even knows about and or finds out after the fact. So that's so true. You know, these players, I think it's taken for granted how much they're carrying in a day, let alone they're trying to, um, you know, even the big time players, they are trying to honor that contract. And, um, you know, the ones that maybe aren't as as famous, for lack of a better word, um, they've it is it's a job. I mean, it turns into um, it's a business at at this level. And for a lot of them, they are supporting families back home. They're playing for a much bigger why than just, um, you know, just the spotlight. Uh, I, I have read that upon seeing the events of, of DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest, seeing that unfold, in addition to your great concern that you had for him, other concerns were part of your almost immediate thought process as well. Um, can you share what some of those would be? Yes, that's absolutely true. In fact, those concerns came on right away for me. Um, you know, it made me think of certain specific players who that would affect in unique ways, whether it's, you know, they have experienced something similar and maybe it's not cardiac arrest of a teammate, but maybe, you know, they have an ill relative. Um, there was just the the idea of mortality was really brought to the surface um and and a big feeling of vulnerability for players who you know go into this game feeling invincible so much of the time and um and so i really thought of those players but i also thought of their family members you know i i was not surprised to hear um from a lot of significant others when this happened and, and a lot of their fears and concerns were, um, were really heightened when all this happened and should, you know, should my husband really still be playing? Um, is this too dangerous? Is it worth the money? Um, you know, this could be life and death and, and things that, you know, when you go into this, you know, it's there, but it's easy to kind of bury and enjoy all of the perks um, but this was really um, an eye opener for for a lot of folks, um, in addition to the players, even our, you know, our training staff and and making you think like, OK, I know this is what we've trained for. But are we really prepared to handle something like this? And and I think the answer was resoundingly yes, but it's it's a good uh, refresher, I think, for everybody. So and I. I'm hearing you say that it, you know, we're talking about a, a real existential crisis for players and their families and loved ones, just those within their circle, uh, because re those relationships matter. And it's just, you know, what next? Is it worth it? Uh, it, it? That's a difficult load to carry on your shoulder. It is because it kind of goes back to what we were just saying and that a lot of players aren't just playing for themselves. And so, you know, do I continue to put myself at risk, even if I don't want to, even if I am afraid for the sake of others? And it's so it's such a complicated 
um, thought process for people because it's just um, it just brings to light the reality of you know how physical this sport is. And you know, clearly, what we're talking about another theme is vicarious trauma. Something that those of us who actively work in the field we we prepare ourselves for um, to be able to deal with vicarious trauma um, and. But we don't think about it in regard to the players uh, around the league, what they may be experiencing when they see somebody get get hurt. Um, is there a potentially common theme that you've kind of been seeing or hearing um, when you talk to players and families? And I would say a common theme is just the the brotherhood that exists um, within our league, and I'm sure you know many other teams and and on all levels not just professional sports mm -hmm. um but there you know there's so much moving around first of all of players you know so they really get to know each other no matter what team they're on you know maybe they were traded last year maybe they were on this team for so many years and and so there does become um a sense of i think protectiveness and a genuine love um, for fellow players who really are the only ones who can understand what it's like to be on that field um, playing this game. And, and so I think that um, vicarious trauma is a very real thing. I think it becomes less of a blanket statement during something like this and a lot more personal when, mm -hmm. you know, there are these existing relationships and, um, and that thought that another theme that was recurring was, gee, you know, that could have been me. It could have been anyone. You know, it wasn't um, it wasn't anybody's fault. They were simply just playing this game and it was a freak thing. And freak things happen, you know, all over the place in and out of sport. Um, but it it really I think I, I think it's fair to say it shook people up. It caused everyone to pause. And I think that the nation got a look at that um, in in the minutes after the uh, of his collapse, where you saw the looks of players on both sides talking and the teams getting together. And at the end, when they uh, when the league kind of decided in, that they're going to cancel the game, there was a sense of relief that you see on the players, and they all came together again. And it is that brotherhood and that that idea of peerness um, becomes very very important. Um, looking out for the next person. Absolutely. Yeah, I uh, think. Um, and that's why, you know, I mean, you heard how Joe Burrow and a, a couple of teammates went over to their locker room and, and checked on them um, when the game was called. And uh, it wasn't about football anymore. It wasn't about a scoreboard. It, it really was just about, um, you know, looking out for your brother and, taking care of each other and finding needs and ways to, to meet them. And, um, you know, everybody's roles, you know, outside of the players were also amplified in terms of like, all right, what do I need to do? What can I do to help this situation? And, and you even saw in a lot of the broadcasters responses, you know, this was a, a first. And so everybody was kind of flying by the seats of their pants. And what do we say? What do we do? What do we, what do we know? We don't know much. And, um, and to have that unfold live um, in front of, you know, fans who are outside of the, 
the team members mm-hmm. and um, and staff. I feel like that even brought everyone together. It was such a shared experience um, emotionally due to what we were all experiencing visually. And so um, in that sense, it really, I think, helped put things in perspective for a lot of people. And I know that personally looking at social media, if you followed somebody on Twitter or whatever, no matter who the individual was, 99.9% were positive things about this young man, about getting better. Um, and just kind of a sense of of hope and wellness going forward, um, rather than the usual Twitter Twitter battles about I'm going to take you deep and I'm going to do this and you know don't come across the middle and all the other things that kind of go with the game of football. And it's a very different experience from something that I remember, like old timers like me will remember um, going back to 1978 where. Uh, a Patriots receiver named Daryl Stingley um, in a preseason game was hit by Jack Tatum of the Oakland Raiders. Jack Tatum was unaffectionately known as assassin at the time, and he embraced it. And it was a clean hit. It was his shoulder to the play to Stingley's head. Again, a freak accident, no intent um, other than to kind of blow up the play um, and make a statement. Uh, but as a result of the hit, Stingley stuff, uh, suffered a compressed spinal cord, hit two broken vertebrae. He was uh, leaving him with tetraplegia and confining him to a wheelchair, uh, wheelchair his entire life. Uh, so Tatum cemented his his reputation. Um, and there was little or no discussion beyond the two players involved um, at that time. Interestingly, doing some research on that, two Raiders, the, John Madden, the coach of the Raiders, and Gene Upshaw, who ended up being the president of Players Association, reached out to Stingley in the hospital to see how he, he was doing. But the Patriots were on the plane, on the runway. Nobody went to see him in the hospital um, in, in Oakland. And it was just just a change. So um, it was horrifying as a kid to see that. Um, but what has changed in the league in regard to addressing, not just the physical, but that vicarious trauma, the, that mortality? What are you seeing and where's the growth come from? I think, you know, situations like that spur growth. I think that, you know, there's been such conversation and, you know, to the point of controversy with with that situation in terms of, um, you know, the assassin and did he did he do it on purpose and he's characterizing him as cold or unremorseful. Um, and he says, you know, I I haven't apologized and I, I won't apologize. He doesn't he's he will say, I'm sorry that happened to him. Um, but as far as he's concerned, you know, he was playing the game. And in that sense, you can kind of relate it to DeMar Hamlin's situation and that they were just playing the game and it's a violent game. Now, I think that players are more self-aware in terms of the aftermath. And um, I think it's important to players now and it's much more permitted in terms of being vulnerable and showing emotion um, to just, you know, show that amidst a very real triggering scenario. And, um, you know, I think it's unfortunate that that those two, um, I don't think they've spoken since. No, both are deceased. And I know that at some point, um, there were a couple of times that Tatum reached out to Stingley, um, but Stingley felt it was for 
the media or for some other gain and wasn't real comfortable. But he did say he had forgiven him um, that it wasn't uh, he knew it wasn't intentional. But it was, you know, and I don't know what the act, the truth is of where either man was. But and I can't necessarily say I believe everything I see in the media about it. But um, there was some contrition on uh, Jack Tatum's acceptance of that. But they just didn't uh, sting. They didn't want to make a spectacle of it. Yeah. And, you know, if there's one thing I've learned, Jeff, from doing this work, it's that you really just can't uh, make assumptions. And when there's lack of an explanation for something, I think the public has a tendency to fill in the blanks and, you know, decide on what was he thinking? Oh, he he must have been thinking this or he must have been feeling this. And the truth is, we don't know. You know, we just don't know. We don't know what else was going on for these guys and how that might have impacted um, the this traumatic situation. Um, but I think that, you know, now fast forward to where we are and we are placing importance on the mental health aspect of these types of situations. Um, you know, I know that if that scenario were to happen again, that both, both guys would have been very supported, both teams. Um, I think that in a good way, it would yeah. have been a little different and, um, there would have been a lot more well-rounded support. Talking about those two individuals, <clears throat> excuse me, and after this happened and, and just remembering that got me thinking about T. Higgins, the receiver who caught the ball, was running upfield trying to make a play um, that he'd done over and over again. And what he may have experienced kind of in the moment and as the time has gone on, um, just the struggle, the the. I'm sure feeling responsible on some level, um, even though that may not be the case, uh, having any responsibility on it, it's, it must weigh on the the young man's shoulders. Um, is a guy who's got a tremendous history in a league, hasn't never gotten any problems, never had issues with other players. Um, but I really felt for him um, kind of being in a bad position um, as the aggressor in the situation. I, I agree. I felt for him too. I mean, I, um, I know, you know, he's been noted as saying, you know, he, how terrible he felt and, um, obviously did not hurt him on purpose. You know, it was again, just a freak thing. Um, but I know that again, you know, he, he needed support as well. And now we have that kind of support in place in the NFL. Um, and I think with, with that, especially when you're the person that quote unquote did it, you know, it's um, I think everybody, as they gained an understanding for what happened, nobody was really pointing fingers in that way, mm -hmm. but there's a sense of helplessness. Um, I think in the immediate moments following, you know, DeMar's collapse, and then even a little bit long-term as there was the big question mark. Is he going to be okay? Um, and and there's nothing anyone can do. And, you know, especially for T. Higgins, I think he would have wanted to do something to make it better, to reverse what happened. And, and that's just not possible. And I think we were all feeling that helplessness in terms of just not even having any answers right away. 
So it's, it's, um, you know, I do feel for him as well and, and what he's had to go through through all this. Yeah, very, I mean, a very difficult situation. I can't even imagine um, kind of, of, of dealing with what he's had to. And, and one thing we see was that it was the national game. It wasn't a regional game. So it was seen all over the country. The Every news outlet carried the replay. So, um, you know, he was thrust in the spotlight as well. Um and I'm glad that that support was there available. And I think it's important that the league has stepped up and done something. It said, we need to make sure that we can take care of our players, um, which is new for all sports leagues, because you talk to a lot of uh, players that have long since retired and how they weren't looked after um, by the league at those times. And we didn't have the knowledge uh, that we have now. Um, and we're seeing players really, really starting to talk about subjects that were uh, considered taboo and kind of taking over the narrative, which I think is really important. So we've got individuals like, you know, Max Crosby, Darren Waller, uh, Jordan Poyer, the Bills, who are very open about their substance use disorder recovery and putting a positive face on that recovery and still excelling at the game that they love, um, that it doesn't change them as a person other than probably making them better as a person by better in touch with themselves. Um, you know, we've got players like Everson Griffin who had to be hospitalized. Uh, Hayden Hurst, who talks about suicidality very bravely uh, uh, and openly. And Dak Prescott talking about his own mental health concerns. Um, is this a huge culture shift? Um, just in the short time, the four or five years that you've been in the league, is he, uh, that you're seeing that? Absolutely. I would describe it as a huge culture shift. You know, I would say within the past five years, we've gone from um, not every team in the NFL even had any sort of um, clinician or mental health um, resource or, you know, permanent person or people um, that were there to, to support the guys. And since then, it became mandated now with the revamping of the collective bargaining agreement in 2019 that every team have somebody or some sort of resource. Um, now, it looks different with every team. It's up to each club how they want that to look. Um, you know, some some clubs, it's, um, you know, they contract with someone on the outside of the team. Others, they're part of the staff. Um, you know, it looks different depending on uh, on their decisions. But for sure, every team not only has a team clinician, um, but every team is required to have an emergency, a mental health emergency action plan, in addition to a crisis emergency action plan. And in addition to that, we are required to rehearse it every year um, and update it. And so, you know, if there are new coaches, if there um, are any changes within the system, then that's all accounted for. And um, I know that with the Rams, we do ours usually day one of training camp. Um, you know, we gather uh, the certain point people together around a table and we do a rehearsal of a very specific scenario. Either that has actually happened or that's, um, you know, hypothetical. And, um, you know, we have had to use it. We have had to use it almost every year in some way, shape or form. And what a relief to everyone to have that, you know, at the ready and um, and have it be clear and, you know, and then to see it 
work like clockwork. It's, it's, um, that would never have been there, you know, even, you know, eight years ago, it's, it's still pretty brand new and we're still kind of ironing out the kinks of that. And, um, across the league in terms of best practices and, and we tell our stories and, um, you know, and what's worked, what, what needs improvement. So it is being taken very seriously now by the, in fact, I would label it as a priority, whereas you didn't even hear about it before. And I would think that repetition and practice for this is just as important as practicing running a jet sweep um, or, or running a blitz package or whatever, so that the people that are involved, it's it's a uh, it's a response. It's a natural response instead of I know that when I worked in crisis, uh, doing crisis evaluations in the community and in the emergency room, the situations never got uh, out of hand because you go in with a lot of training. Okay, here's what we do and here's how we handle it. And I think that makes a, a lot. And does that type of environment make it more okay for as individuals, as human beings, for players and for coaches and to have that vulnerability as a human being? Yes. Um, you know, I think that at least in our environment at the Rams, it's supported from the top down that if you need additional help, if you need to talk to somebody, you know, go see Dr. Carey. If you, um, if you're feeling, you know, anxious, even about stuff outside of football, you know, it's okay to go talk, you know, every year, like in our very first team meeting, um, coach McVeigh will advocate for this resource. And I think it's really good for the guys to hear it from him, um, from Les Sneed, our general manager, mm -hmm. that they support total wellness and, and, you know, guys that they trust. Now you'll have players in the locker room, maybe who've been seeing me, if they notice that somebody's a little off, they'll check in with them. Um, if they think they could use the extra support, they'll say, Hey, you know, I've been seeing Dr. Carey for so long, you know, maybe you should try too. It's, and the fact that it's coming from other players, that to me is just um, the seal of approval. And and I think that more than anything is what will influence other players across the league, but also our younger athletes and also non-athletes who look up to these guys. You know, if they can do it, I can do it. If they think and it's beneficial for them, then why wouldn't I? Right. And I think it's and and you know, I do have an ulterior motive here, and it's kind of to talk about the fact that men in society um, and, and the difficulty expressing emotion, how we have been socialized um, not to express emotion um, or to express it in terms of anger outwardly. Uh, but when you see people that you consider to be alpha males um, saying, hey, I, you know, I do this on the field, but that's my job. I have a life and I need to worry about these other things. Um, I, I think that changes the view of of people, um, and I, I can't underestimate you know the value of that uh, for the public. Um, in this field, you know, we show uh, in in the clinical world and in, in peer work, we're showing a renewed focus on self care. I'm not real happy about the way people do that. They look at it as an event. I'm going to get a massage. I'm going to go on vacation. Um, and hearing phrases like, hey, you just, you got to take care of yourself. You can't pour from an empty cup. Um, 
and it sounds like what you're seeing is significant uh, improvement in in just overall kind of functioning and able to deal with all the stressors when they fill their own cup they're able to pour into the next players who's struggling or the whoever else they're coming in contact with yes yeah, self-care is really uh prioritized i I know that I um, talk about it constantly with our players. Um, and it's funny because as the season goes on, you'll see how whatever is happening, whatever our record is, whatever's going on in people's lives, how it affects them. Um, you know, I remember uh, our journey to the Super Bowl, um, you know, come January, everybody's just fried. But at the same time, you know, you've got hopefully this much more time left. And, um, and so I did a, a stress management training with our performance staff. And it's, I think the important thing, it's, it's like you said, it doesn't have to be an event. You don't have to carve out a half hour of time you don't have um, to take care of yourself. It can be in very subtle ways. It can be internal, you know, in terms of some good, healthy self-talk. Um, you know, it's like, what would you say to someone else? And and turning that on yourself in, in the form of self-compassion. I really encourage mental rest in the sense of give your mind a break from whatever is consuming it and overwhelming you. And again, that that's an active thing. It's not just, um, you know, a, a restful, inactive, passive thing. Um, I know that you know, it's easy to say, oh, everybody's got five minutes, but really sometimes you don't <laughs> in a day. And so, um, you know, one suggestion I made for, for people was, okay, you know, let's think of something that you do have every day. So every day you drive home. So maybe, um, you know, and it's easy while you're driving, you get on autopilot, your mind's racing and thinking about all sorts of stressors and things you have to do. Um, so, you know, I'll encourage people, well, take a different route home because when you drive a different way, you have to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And if you're paying attention in that moment, you can't be thinking about all these other things. And in that sense, you're giving your mind a break. And so, you know, that, that sense of mindfulness comes in really handy when you're overwhelmed. And, and as you talk about mindfulness, one of my really strong interest when we talk about self-care is emotional intelligence. Uh, it's talked about a lot in business, in in mental health and, and substance use disorders. It's starting to be uh, spoken about a little bit, but I look at that as self-care 24-7. If you understand kind of what's happening with you, being mindful in the moment, know what you're thinking, being aware of the situation you're going into um, and how you're going to respond to it and those sorts of things, it's incredibly powerful. Um, you know, if I know that I have to block uh, Aaron Donald, I'm good. I accept the fact that I'm going to get beat more times than I want to. <laughs> and you just, okay, you come back to the next play and do it. And, and people can do that on the field, but can they do that in life and kind of to manage the stressors? Because we can't always simply compartmentalize. Um, exactly. Is it fair to say that those players who are – and I use success in different terms. Successful on the field, they're maintaining their career, but then have everything else going pretty well in their life. Would you say that those folks have a, a pretty high level of emotional intelligence? Uh, I'd say it could go either way. I think that's mm -hmm. definitely an asset. Um, I think that those folks have probably learned a good amount of emotional intelligence along the way 
just from, you know, life lessons. Um, I find myself teaching that a lot, you know, when I meet with someone who, who may have never, you know, faced inward and asked themselves certain questions or even learned how to articulate their feelings, um, their opinions on things in, in ways that, um, you know, are feel comfortable for them and are understandable um, by others in terms of, you know, gaining empathy and all that stuff. And and that's really powerful um, to see happen because that translates directly onto the field. And in terms of, you know, things like decision-making, problem solving, um, you know, stress management in the moment, time management, all of those things. So I, you know, I, I can, sense pretty early on, you know, where someone is with all that. And sometimes it is, it's just kind of learning some basic uh, skills that can help, help them shape their identity. Because that's another thing I actually spend a lot of time on, especially with the rookies, um, reminding them you're so much more than a football player. And, you know, no matter how successful you are, you are more than a football player. Now, these guys at this level, that may be all they've ever thought about, all they've ever talked about, all they've ever been asked about. And so, you know, I'll even do an activity with them sometimes um, to to have them check in with themselves. I call it identity pie. And I have them draw a, a circle, draw a pie on paper, and I'll ask them these rapid fire questions about themselves that don't have to do with football. And it's funny because often I'll see, I'll see the guy's faces or I'll see them kind of almost start to panic, like, wait, slow down. Cause they don't know it's, it's not just popping into their head. Even if it's something like, what's your favorite color? Um, cause they've never, they've never had to think about that. They've never been asked about things like that. Um, so I think it's just a good exercise to remind people that, um, you do need some emotional intelligence in and shaping your own identity too. And from conversations that I've had with, and I mentioned them offline, and Ryan Leaf, everything in his life was successful, tremendously successful. Nobody told him no, and he didn't experience failure until he got to the biggest stage, and he just emotionally was not ready to handle it, and it made him crumble physically. Um, and it happened on national TV, the things, but when you, when you talk to him now, he just says, I just couldn't handle it. I didn't, I couldn't handle it all. All he was, was a football player. No one had ever told him no. And he never had to be anything else until after. So I think the learning curve for many of these, even rookies who are the, the last man cut or just barely make the team and they're on the practice squad, they were always the best at what they did. Um, you know, the very few, uh, Matt Castles, who were backups, who were going to starting jobs in the NFL. It can happen, but it, it's rare. Um, he was just in that situation in college playing behind great players. But I think that that seeing themselves as something other than a football player and being able to handle small failures in life must be just enormous uh, in you know, okay, I have a small failure on this player in, in the field, but it doesn't have to dictate their life. Right. Here's and a I question. Part because of you part were... of that... Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say, I think that's part of that cultural shift you were mentioning in terms of the goal is not to push these emotions away. It's to be able to manage them. You can't make them go away. And, and so I think 
guys, especially, especially males, often try to bury these things or push them down or block them out. And then they just come in stronger. And so it's, you know, now giving them a resource that giving them some tools so that they can just learn to manage them, maybe compartmentalize them um, so that they're not ignoring them. You know, one of the things that I find really interesting is, is you work in the second largest market in this country, right? Um, for LA. Um, so, and then there's the 24 hour a day, seven days a week news cycle and social media where everything that these individuals do is captured by somebody um, on film or whatever. Do you see those pressures really wearing on, on individuals just that they've got to be on guard every second of the day because of the way the, the world of uh, media and social media is? I, I see it in some players. I do. Um, not everyone, but it's hard because, you know, these days for a lot of guys, social media is their business. It's their mm-hmm. platform. And so they can't not look at it, which seems like an easy fix. Um, they have to be involved in it. And so, and of course, you know, athletes at this level, they're all perfectionists and and there can be a thousand positive comments, but they're going to hang on to that one, that one piece of criticism that somebody might say um, is going to, is going to bother them and, you know, get under their skin for a while. So I, it's hard because it's um it depends on each person's personality too and how they've learned to cope with you know certain pressures or comments mm-hmm. um where their level of resilience stands so it, there's not kind of a an, an overall blanket fix um to that but it's i think again you can't that's not going anywhere so rather than trying to shut it out it's helping them build skills to manage their reactions and um, and again just bolster their resilience. And, and you're making a point, important point that I don't want to miss for the listeners is that you're talking about individuals. You can call them NFL players, you can call them a Ram, you can call them a Charger, you can call them a Patriot. But in reality, every team is made up of a group of individuals that that all have to adjust to come together. Um, so there is no blanket cure. Hey, do this for everybody. Do this for that. Um, because people are different, just like in the community. I think it's important that people see that again, they're not machines. They're, they're human beings who have different things going on. Um, you know, as this seismic shift is occurring, where athletes are talking about the challenges that they experience, what advice free, you know, simply, I guess, or generally would you give to those in the public? about how to view these these incredibly talented individuals. I think it's just as you said, see them as individuals, see them as people. You know, they're their husbands, their fathers, they're they're just showing up at work every day. Sometimes they're they want to be there and sometimes they don't. Um, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not grateful, but it's not automatic either. I think it's so important to keep in perspective that, you know, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like anyone else. And so they've got their own, you know, list of issues and things that they're dealing with. Um, And so they don't deserve the same way. Maybe they don't deserve to, you know, be seen as, uh, you know, 
gods, Mm -hmm. they also deserve our compassion. And I think that that can be lost when we don't see them as human beings. And we see them as, um, well, they, they have no reason to complain. They've got so many millions of dollars. Well, I, you know, I would disagree. I think that with that comes certain responsibilities, certain new issues to deal with. And, um, and so they're, you know, they're taking it one day at a time and, um, you know, battling through, decisions and injuries that that may impact them for the rest of their lives. And so I think I often talk with them about, you know, their why. And that I would encourage listeners um, and people of all ages really to always check in with your why. Why are you playing? You know, are you happy? If you're not enjoying it, then then why do it? You know, who are you playing for? Are you mm-hmm. playing for yourself? Or are you playing for someone else? You know, is it is it worth it to you? Is it worth whatever sacrifices you're making? You should always love what you're doing, your sport. Now, is it going to be fun 100% of the time? No, it's hard work. It's pain. It's sacrifice. But ultimately, you want to be there for the love of the game and and because you want to be there. There's an interesting line in Bull Durham where uh, Kevin Costner leaves. He gets cut by Durham and he's going to Asheville to play. And has this relationship with uh, uh, Susan Sarandon. And one of the things she says when he she says to herself when he's gone is, hey, baseball to me is all these metaphysical things, but it's also a job. So there are struggles that come with things every day. And I think it's just like you and I will experience difficulties Um uh, so do these elite athletes. Uh, not everything is, is comes easy for them. Um, right. before I, we finish. I will just say an example, by the way. Um, you know, we had a game on Christmas Day this past season. And, you know, which is easy to see as a luxury, like, wow, you know, they can't complain about missing Christmas. They're in the NFL. But, you know, I know, I know some people like it was their baby's first Christmas. You know, things like that, that that's so universal. And um, and to miss that, that's a hardship. That's hard no matter what your job is. Um, so, yeah, again, just keeping things in perspective. And here in New England, there's a story years ago that Kevin, the, the Celtics were playing the Knicks on Christmas Day in New York. And Kevin McHale said, that's it. I'm not traveling with the team. I'm not missing Christmas morning with my kids. And it created a rift between he and Larry Bird, who was probably – one of the most singularly focused individuals uh, yeah. on basketball just saying that's not okay. And and Mikhail saying, I don't care what you think. These are my children. This is my family. And it got some traction at the time, but it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. I'm not missing this. I have priorities and uh, that's a priority for life, not for right now right. You know, or for the right. moment. And ultimately that can help you win or perform better in the end because yeah, you're if, you're, if you're happy, um, so I saw an old documentary years ago that the 49ers were one of the first teams to have chartered plane and catered food on the, the thing. And they realized that it it paid off on the field with their success, that players were happy. They made it as pleasant as possible going on the road. Um, and, and in the 70s, I remember watching the NFL today with Irv Cross and Phyllis George and Brent Musburger that Irv Cross went back to his old team, the Eagles, and saw that they had a mood room. That was their little timeout room. If you needed just to get away, you could go into the mood room 
shut the door, play music, do whatever, and just have a few minutes for yourself. So even back in the mid seventies, there were still these issues were there. They just weren't being addressed as widely. Right. Um, before we finish, is there anything you'd like to add or to tell our listeners? Well, I would, I would just applaud people for listening to something like this and to you for focusing on, you know, this matter. I think that as we're seeing, and it's unfortunate because a lot of times these conversations are reignited by a tragedy. You know, you see these young athletes taking their own lives and succumbing to pressure. And um, and so I would say to educate yourselves as best you can in how to be there for someone. You don't have to be someone's therapist uh, to, to help them out. And I think that will help your own feelings of helplessness if you know somebody's struggling you know, know how to point them in the right direction. Um, just be there. Just being there. You don't even have to say anything. Just being there with someone does so much and and can provide so much support and healing for someone just to know they're not alone. So, you know, I would I would not sell yourself short in the power that you have as fellow human beings. And, you know, take some time to educate yourself on Maybe some red flags of, you know, how to know if someone is in distress. Well, I appreciate your time today. Um, Dr. Hastings, thank you for spending some time, um, uh, you know, in your busy day, taking a half an hour, 40 minutes to talk to us. Um, I appreciate everything you do and and keep uh, doing. But if you get a job with the Patriots, I want them to do better. We have to get them back to where they were over the last 20 years. Okay. I had a lot of bad. I had a lot of bad seasons from the seventies through the nineties. People forget that, and I'm very grateful for what we had for the last yeah. twenty years. But it's time to turn it around again. Yeah, so. I don't know if the rest of the world will be with you in terms of the yet. I think that they might need some more time from the yeah. Patriots dynasty. Well, yeah, <laughs> the rest of the world went from not knowing who the Patriots were, or not caring, to hating them. So that's kind of a big jump. You know, there's that right. fine line between love and hate. That's true. That's so. true. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. We appreciate all who listen. I want to thank Dr. Hastings one more time for taking the time to discuss this with us and provide her unique view on the issues. I think it was really eye-opening for me. Please keep listening and tell your colleagues, too, as we bring forward issues that are discussed far less often than they should be. Until next time, everybody, 